1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
2: Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington
0: Post. I'm hey, it's Philip Rucker
1: at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zack from The Washington this Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, August 16th. Today, identifying as non-binary while navigating pregnancy. And remembering Aretha Franklin's life through her songs.
3: I've had people that are close to me, you know, find out that I was pregnant and they're like, I can't believe you're, you're like, you're basically a pregnant dude. (laughs) Like, that's so weird. Like, how do you deal with that? And I'm like, there's no place on the gender spectrum that says where you can and cannot be a parent.
4: Braden and I first met because we were talking about dating, and it was just a phone call about what it's like to date in the non-binary community. And we talked for like a half hour, and then by the end of it, Brayden was like, oh, by the way, I'm pregnant. And, and I was fascinated by what that, what that means for Braden.
1: That's Samantha Schmidt. She's a reporter, and she's been following a 26-year-old named Braden Schertzinger, who identifies as non-binary.
4: It means different things to different people. For some people, it could mean that they don't feel male or female, that they feel that their gender is something entirely different. For some people, it means that they feel a little bit male, a little bit female. Or there's, for some people, they might kind of veer more in one direction than the other. So you might present mostly masculine, but not identify as a man. And often they use they, them pronouns. And that's the case for Brayden, who's still
1: figuring out their gender identity.
3: But like one of my friends is non-binary trans And I think that's just where you identify as the, the they-them, but you're more on the masculine side of being non-binary, which is, I think, what I would fall into. But I don't want to, like I said, I don't know what my factory settings are quite yet, so I'm not trying to print the wrong label. But um, that sounds more accurate.
1: Brayden's non-binary identity is something that they've spent a lot of time working to figure out. They try to present as more masculine. You can hear that in their voice, and they also had facial hair for a while. But the pregnancy made things more complicated. And Braden wrestled with what's called dysphoria, the distress of being in a body that didn't match their gender identity. Initially, they identified as a transgender man. I used to. I just
4: used to care so much. because mm-hmm. like, when I was growing up, like my mom wanted me to be like. So, not- Brayden was in the process of transitioning. Was was taking testosterone. They'd actually been documenting it on on YouTube. They were living in Florida at the time, in a group of mostly guys uh, living in this uh, apartment together. And Brayden suddenly wasn't really feeling all that masculine in the way that they had before. They still felt more masculine than feminine, but they they didn't totally identify with the men around them. And they went to a support group one day for the LGBT community, and somebody identified as non-binary. And Braden had, had heard that word before, but had never really understood it totally, and suddenly it really resonated. It was like, now there's this word that defines this feeling that I have that is not totally male, and is definitely not female. It's somewhere in between, and it, it was like a light bulb.
1: So Braden stopped taking testosterone because of their shifting understanding of their own gender identity, and because they realized that it could get in the way of their dream of someday becoming a mom. And so I just
3: took it on a leap of faith. I'm, not, I'm just going let it, to let it stop. And, you know, maybe this is a sign that this is what I should do. And look at that. Four months later, I'm pregnant.
1: And what did their... What did their partner and, and what did their family say about this?
4: So the family has has always thought of Brayden, you know, someday being a mom. I mean, I think they were thrilled. Brayden's father is super supportive; has always been rolling with it. You know, oh, Brayden wants to go with he pronouns. Great, let's try it. All right, Brayden's going with they. All right, I'll do my best. Um, the mom has had a harder time with the pronouns. She still calls Brayden by Brayden's birth name and has had a harder time understanding it. But I think in some ways, this pregnancy has brought them closer together because, you know, this is something that Brayden's mom can really identify with. The baby's father is an interesting case of somebody who didn't totally understand this gender identity thing. Brent, uh, the dad, had dated Brayden as a woman. And so I think it was a lot harder for for Brent to... To kind of adapt, you know, towards the beginning of my my time following Brayden, they weren't dating. They were no longer a couple, but Brent was coming along to the doctor's appointments. After the baby was born, they actually decided to to try again to to be a couple, and they've actually been doing very well. And from what I hear, Brent is actually trying to, to, you know, to use the right pronouns to be more, you know, adaptive to Brayden's gender identity. For Brayden,
1: being in the position where they are both identifying as non-binary but also pregnant, I feel like it must be really challenging just in terms of all the medical stuff. Because when you're non-binary, you have to assert all the time, I'm not a woman, I'm not a woman, don't refer to me as she, I'm not a woman. But that so much of how we think about pregnancy is based in an identity of womanhood. And that I imagine you show up at the doctor's office and everyone is going to call you she.
4: The hospital is actually called a women's hospital. You walk in the doors and it says women's hospital. And so it's just an automatic sign that this is not a place that has yet adapted to the concept of a non-binary or a transgender parent having a baby because transgender men can have babies too. And Brayden still legally goes by a different name. And so When they show up at at the doctor's office, uh, they get called by their their birth name. And, you know, they get Miss Schertzinger. And everything about the process in the waiting room caters to moms and to to women in particular.
3: Mostly, like, when when my breast started to grow and things Mm -hmm. like that. And honestly, like, going to doctors' appointments where, like, you know, they ask about the condition of... A reproductive area, mm-hmm. you know, and it's obviously all feminine terms. Having to get like a pap smear done, mm. all these feminine related tests is, is most of the time when the, the dysphoria was the worst. That are regular conversations with people about
4: the fact that I was pregnant. It's the most feminine experience possible, you know, the, the image of an ultrasound is exactly what we think of when we think of, you know, women and, and um, childbirth, and something about that experience is very dysphoric to Brayden, but at the same time, it's, it's extremely rewarding because they get to see their baby, and it's this child that they're so excited to have, and so it's kind of at once extremely uncomfortable, and also the most joyful thing they've ever done. And none of
3: the dysphoria ever makes me feel like I love my child any less or that I'm any less happy about being pregnant. Like I'm very excited for the journey that I'm on. I'm happy to be pregnant. I just, I wish there were other avenues of making it a little more bearable for somebody that has a gender spectrum different than the stereotype
4: I mean, there were times where I was in the doctor's office with them, and and the doctor said, all right, we're going to have to do an exam today, a vaginal exam, and Brayden's face just fell because it was like, all right, this is about to be extremely uncomfortable and dysphoric. It's going to feel just entirely wrong, and it's painful, but also at the same time, Brayden just tried to focus on why they're doing this. This is for Owen. This is for my baby. This is, like, the body I need to to be in right now in order to raise him and give birth to him. And so I'm going to put up with it and sacrifice myself in this moment for him. All right. What are you feeling?
3: Feel like I'm hitting myself. Oh, I felt it. Oh, it's so uncomfortable Oh, now. God. Oh, dear.
1: I knew this walk was right.
3: <laughs> you were right. Mom, get in the car.
1: So... Tell me the story of the day that Brayden's water broke.
4: It was it was amazing to see because I was not expecting to witness it. Um, but Never I there? was there. I was there. Yeah.
3: And it's coming out of my vagina right now. I gotta walk to the house and go. Bye. Oh, I'm like shaking. I want to cry. All
4: oh, right. It broke. The whole time, though, Brayden was was both. Kind of, you know, couldn't in disbelief that it was actually happening, but also extremely excited. Like this was what they wanted to experience. They wanted to feel this, um, and and it was happening right then. It's it's right? There. Yeah. I know. Oh my Good. goodness! It's a cruel world. How long will you be here? Till at least
3: Wednesday. I tore. Okay. So doctor said Wednesday. Gotcha. Maybe three days or something. Two days. I got some stitches. Thanks, man. Oh uh-huh. um, He's like, up to welcome. So how many pounds are Six pounds, three ounces. Six pounds, three ounces. Well, so he went way down from the appointment. No. Six, six pounds, three
2: ounces
3: is this Yeah. And six three now? Yeah.
1: So since then, what has Braden's experience been like of being a parent? No, no, no. Hey, 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 hey. It's
2: okay. It's okay.
1: You're good. Oh, no. Okay. Oh, I
3: know. Okay.
4: A moment that really stuck out to me was uh, shortly after Owen was born. Brayden called a pediatrician to set up a doctor's appointment, and the person on the other line asked for the birthday of the mom, basically asked for information about the mom in a way that made it clear that they did, he did not think that Brayden was the mom, and that really hurt for Brayden. It was really offensive, and I was struck by that because usually Brayden actually liked it when they were identified as as more masculine. Their voice is is deeper because of their testosterone usage. They look more masculine than feminine. By all intents and purposes, people walking by might think that Brayden is a guy. And that's usually what Brayden likes. Brayden likes to be masculine. But in this moment, it hurt because it made it seem like Brayden was not the primary caregiver, that Brayden was not the mom. And Brayden had just spent nine months carrying this baby. It's just now hitting you? I don't know. (laughs) You quote that <laughs> I mean, in the moment that Braden was calling the doctor, they were breastfeeding this baby. And I mean, it was a moment that to them, they wanted to to affirm and make it clear that they're the mom. And I think that was something different from my, what I expected, that this was something, um, this was a moment in which their gender presentation didn't totally align with how they were feeling in this specific moment. Did you talk to Brayden
1: about their decision to be identified as a mom rather than as a as a dad or as a parent but 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 wanting to be known as Owen's mom?
4: Yeah, I was really struck by that because I assumed that the word mom would be too binary for Brayden, that they would want to be parent instead of mom. But actually, the word mom means something different to Brayden. They actually have a tattoo on their foot that says mom. And it's because there were these neighborhood kids who all kind of saw Brayden as their mom. And and Brayden would always invite them over after school and make the mac and cheese and was very much a motherly figure for them. And for Brayden, that word meant something specific. And it was this nurturing word that that Brayden identified with.
1: And I, and I feel like this story kind of makes you rethink a lot of the terms that we use and a lot of the ways that we think about certain roles in parenthood, right? Like that Brayden's experience kind of questions like, what does it mean to be a mom? What does it mean to be a mother? But it just makes us realize how complicated our understanding of all these like kind of seemingly simple
4: ideas are. Right. And I think in Brayden's mind, it also makes us wonder, you know, does it matter? Like, does it matter that Brayden doesn't identify as a male or female? I mean, in Brayden's mind, they're just raising a kid and they're trying to raise a kid that's going to be healthy and happy. And, and you know, everyone around Brayden isn't all that surprised because, It's just how Brayden identifies and presents. But Brayden's always been both very masculine and very nurturing. This is just who Brayden is.
1: Samantha Schmidt covers gender and family issues for The Post.
0: I'm Jeff Edgers. I'm the national arts reporter at the Washington Post.
1: And what are we here to talk about?
0: Well, Aretha Franklin,
2: obviously.
1: Been one year since the death of Aretha Franklin.
0: It dawned on me when Aretha Franklin died last year that I just feel like the way we commemorate death is so different now. You know, it used to be you'd read like an obituary in your paper of choice and you'd hear something on the radio. But now we see stories on Instagram. We see people tweeting things. We see anecdotes from all corners. I just find that to be moving in some ways. But what I think it also does is it makes us forget people who are really important rather quickly. We're like, oh, Aretha's got, oh, Glenn Fry, uh, you know, oh, that guy from Jefferson Airplane who played like uh, drums on their 1974 record. And for me, as someone who's an old man with uh, young children, I spend all of my time trying to show the youth of America who we should remember and why we should remember them. So you go back and you're telling them the story of Aretha Franklin. So that's one piece. The other piece is that Aretha Franklin was an incredibly private person. So with her, the only way to really tell her story is through her music. So I just wanted to pick a few songs, a few performances that I thought really told her story and report those out.
1: Who did you talk to when you went back to think about all of Aretha's music?
0: Well, I I did not think small. I thought big. And I thought... Who can I talk to here? So I went for the biggest people I could think of Paul Simon, Carol King, Oprah.
1: Wait, Oprah? Like, o- Oprah, Oprah? Oprah! Did you actually talk to I Oprah? I spoke to
0: Oprah, yes. Oh
1: my God. My favorite song is
5: Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves. <laughs> That is exactly how I feel. <laughs> this is a song to celebrate the conscious liberation of the female state. It is, is, was, and continues to be my own personal anthem.
1: So, w- when you talk to Oprah, what did she say, and how did that song end up becoming such an anthem for her? It came out at a time
5: when I was building my own company and asserting my own independence, feeling my own sense of worthiness as a woman and and claiming the, the business fear for myself.
0: You know, when you listen to the song now, first of all, I'm interested in the fact that it, it sounds really good. I mean, like, I always expect to listen to things from the 80s and have it all sound like men without hats, but <laughs> it actually sounds pretty good. It's interesting to me that Aretha did not write that song, Annie Lennox wrote the words to that song. But Aretha clearly takes it on, and that is the voice that Oprah hears.
5: You know, when I first started in Chicago, I'd gone to the bosses to try to get more money for the women who were all working for me. And I was told that they didn't need any more money because they didn't have houses and families, and so why did they need it? So that first year, they wouldn't give me a raise. And I remember having a Christmas luncheon for everybody, and literally rolling up ten thousand dollars in a toilet paper roll, putting a bow on it, and having that as the um, you know as a takeaway gift for everybody, because I couldn't get the management to pay them any more money. And then I went into management and said, either they're going to get more money, or I'm not going to work, and then we're not going to have a show, and so you're going to have to pay them more money.
1: Tell me about your conversation with Carol King.
0: So you know Carol King. Um it was interesting because I remembered watching her at the Kennedy Center Honors when she was being honored a few years ago.
5: I was the one being honored. And so she had been invited to perform to honor me. And, you know, the very concept of that is like, really? You know, but...
0: And Aretha came on to sing Natural Woman, or You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. <laughs> It was a memorable, memorable
1: moment when she when she performed that.
0: It was amazing. I mean, she brought a purse out. She threw her her coat onto the ground. She started on <laughs> piano. Carol King wrote that song for Aretha. She recorded the demo, and then Aretha took took it away.
2: Aretha sort of set the standard, and then she takes it to a higher level at the Kennedy Center.
0: You know, she talked in very specific detail of how Aretha took over that song. Were you surprised when you heard her version? I mean, you remember where you know hearing it for the first time and what your response was.
2: Yes, I was surprised because it was
0: magnificent. You know, Carol King's version is the sort of uh, quiet at home on the piano version.
5: My version on tapestry was done differently, just done differently, more intimately. Hers was a joyous cry. You make me feel, you
2: make me feel, you make me feel like a natural woman.
5: woman. Joyous. I have... I have never heard anybody sing anything with that much joy except maybe gospel singers who sing about God with that much joy, which was her background.
1: You also talked about her performance of Amazing Grace. Who did you talk to about that?
0: I talked to CeCe Winans.
2: It was a a well-known hymn to the world, Um, but like Risa did with everything she sang, she created something that was most powerful, you know, with that song.
0: Amazing Grace, you know, it's, in some ways, Amazing Grace is one of the most cliched songs in our universe, right? So I mean, many
1: people sing it, and I tend to think that people make the same choices, except for Aretha.
0: Right. Ah!
2: like only Aretha could, she could deliver a song that would just um, have that gospel flavor and touch the heart and bring a sense of awareness to to the lyrics like, like nobody else.
0: The other piece, which is, you know, might seem obvious today is, you know, gospel music, when when rock musicians or uh, secular musicians play, do a gospel album, like Elvis Presley or something used to do that, or even Sam Cooke, it was kind of like a side project. Like, oh, this is our, like, this is Neil Diamond's Christmas album, you know? Um, But what uh, Aretha proved with Amazing Grace was you could bring that music to the mainstream.
2: Oh, it meant everything for our gospel genre. It proved that everybody would embrace gospel music, that it didn't deserve to just be in
0: a box that was her most successful record that sold better than anything else and so it created a model for cc winans and any gospel artist to have a real career
2: and so yeah you know when she did that it was it was it was like all of us doing that <laughs> it opened up doors how did
1: all of these interviews and all of these memories from people over the years of her and her performances, how did they change the way that you understand who Aretha Franklin is?
0: Well, originally I thought, I really want to tell the story of Aretha Franklin. Like I want to do almost like the history of her. And what I found from trying to pick apart that history is it really wouldn't have been that special if I had found out details or spoke to people about like what did she go through in 1973? Or like, what I found was the music itself was really the best way to tell that story. So if you're telling that story about that childhood and what the church meant to her, you're talking about Amazing Grace. If you're telling the story about what it's like to be a woman in the late 60s and try to take command of your career, that's Doctor Feelgood. You know, if you're talking about, uh, you know, what it's like to take staples of of our culture, you know, songs that everybody, I mean, what song do people know more than Bridge Over Troubled Water and to reinvent it yourself? Water. So, what I basically found is that she should remain a mystery. I mean, like all great art. And the only real way to tell her story is through that art. Oh, yeah.
1: Jeff Edgers is a national arts reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Ted Muldoon, Maggie Penman, and Jordan Murray Smith. Our intern is Rennie Spernovsky. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.